This is our 166, and I'm Kim Howard. If you've been listening from episode one, you'll know this whole thing started because I didn't understand how crop over could have started in the 1970s as I'd long heard, but we were harvesting sugarcane crops since the 1600s. It didn't make sense to me. But what I was able to find out and share with you is that crop over long existed here and in other islands of the British West Indies where sugarcane was harvested. However, unlike other islands, we stuck with sugar exclusively, and so it seems the practice of crop over. We also remained solely occupied by the British for the entirety of our colonial existence, until the sun set in this corner of the empire with our independence in 1966. I never dreamed conversations about crop over would bring me to reflect so much on independence, but it has. So let's move forward now, a decade or so after independence, to the late 1970s. It's a time for running your own country things. Another general election looms. Industrial parks with their attractive tax holidays have emerged as a source of employment and foreign direct investment. Tourism is on its way to becoming the major economic player, and there's a push to pull visitors to the island. So what does it take to develop buy-in for a national event in a nation barely 10 years independent? How do you determine what to include and what to leave out of the old-time celebrations? When Cropover moved from the island's plantations to the national stage, there needed to be organizers, people responsible for making it work. Major events like these are often shaped by personalities, and our next guest is one such personality. To better understand how he came to be the first director of the National Cultural Foundation in Barbados, I asked him to tell us a bit more about himself and what put him on the road to becoming a cultural champion. Elombe Motley, thanks for joining me and welcome to our 166. Thank you for considering me as I can feel with some information to share, but I appreciate it very much. Well, I'm definitely happy to have you and glad that you were able to share some time as well. I won't correct you though. Tell me. I introduced the idea of crop over. And if okay. I, you want me to tell you the story, I will tell you the story. If you want <laughs> me to start now, I won't tell you that. We, right? we'll get, we can get to it. You see this? This right here is what I was nervous about. Who remembers listening to the call-in radio program Gattapert back in the 90s? Elombe was the host, and he really didn't hold back if a caller was talking foolishness. I distinctly remember him cutting people off. As a child, I was horrified. As a grown woman today, I want to shake his hand. As an interviewer, I just hoped he didn't cut our call short. Right, we can okay. get to it. I promise you that. <laughs> but that's why we have you here today. For no, sure. because a lot of people keep assuming, therefore, that, that Marishaw on the tourist board started it. <laughs> All right. And we, I, we, I, I, there are a lot of things I can correct for you um, this, uh, starting with that one. Well, you know, the thing about it is, is that there are people that don't even know that story about Marishaw. So mm -hmm. you're, you're thinking that they may know that already, but they don't even know that. So this is what this is all about to help correct some of those ideas that some people may have and then to fill in the vacuum that exists because there's some people that just don't have a clue. So that's what we're talking about today. And the second one is I created mm -hmm. the National Cultural Foundation. I wasn't just employed. I made it. I created it, designed it, employ every single person, set the standards and so on. 
Okay, so you were the originator of the National Cultural Foundation, yes. and then you led it. Yeah, till 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 Erskine Sandford fire me, <laughs> which I can talk about. Well, those are the realities of the game. Very well then. Okay. Yep. All my gutter perk memories came flooding back. Anyhow, onward. First, I want to talk a little bit about you. You pursued studies in sciences and accounting. I started out going to do medicine as the proverbial thing. My brother was doing law and I was doing medicine. And I made the mistake of working as an orderly in Winnipeg General Hospital in the summer. And that changed my mind about medicine immediately. All right. So then how did you become interested in researching Barbadian culture? I always had an interest in that. And, 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 but what, what was really important was when I went to Canada at St. John's College, which is a small Anglican church college on the campus, they had several different uh, religious groups, a United, Catholic, all, each one had a college on this campus at the University of Manitoba. The Canadians were very curious about these black people that were coming to study it because it was the first time that they'd seen so many black people coming in. They were from Barbados, from Trinidad, from Jamaica, from Africa, and so on. Mm -hmm. And they were asking me a lot of questions that I couldn't understand. And one second, once one one second, that second was for me to go under my bed <laughs> and find two books. Here's one. The West Indies and Caribbean Yearbook, yes. Right. And this was published in 1964. Mm -hmm. And previous editions were in the library at St. John's College. And because they were asking me so many questions, factual questions I did not know, I went there and I saw this these books. And eventually, this edition is 1964. The other editions I had was in 1957 and 58. And there was another one, a red one, it's somewhere under the bed again, <laughs> uh, called Personalities in the Caribbean. And mm -hmm. it went through every island, listed all the government officials, all the senior public servants, uh, all the top people in the society, who the married to, who, who, how many children they had, where the children were named, and all that. What, 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 what it gave me was a comprehensive picture of what constituted the Caribbean. So I knew then Jamaica, uh, who was who in Jamaica, Antigua, all over the Caribbean. Remember the Federation was functioning at that particular time. Truthfully, I really don't know nearly enough about the West Indies Federation. I know that Sir Grantley Adams was the Prime Minister, and he was also the Premier of Colonial Barbados. The other thing I know about is, one from ten leaves not. A statement made by the Premier of Trinidad and Tobago, Dr. Eric Williams. Apparently, he made the statement after Jamaica withdrew from the political union, foreshadowing TNT's exit from the Federation soon after. The entire thing lasted almost four years. But it wasn't all disillusion and disappointment. The University College of the West Indies in Jamaica expanded, with the campus opening in Trinidad during that time. And after I went through all of these, this information, I kept those, I went and bought two of the books, the more mm -hmm. up-to-date ones, and I started studying and answer. Now, for Barbados, it was important for me to understand 
where the power lies. So you would go to shipping and trading and they would list all the names of the directors. And then each director, they would see he was married to this body, nay, that meaning the maiden name. They mm -hmm. had so many children, blah, 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 blah. They went to this university or they did not go to university and they live at this place and they were directors of this company and that company and the next company and all the way from A to Z. And that information armed me with knowledge that even though brought up in Ernest Data Motley's house, and he fed me a lot of information earlier tonight about, about Barbados, that consolidated my knowledge because seeing it in black and white and being able to double check and crisscross who was family and who wasn't family and all that. So coming back to Barbados in 66, I was armed with that information. Just to pin that down, Mm -hmm. I was I was um, at home one night, and there was a discussion on television. If Barbados is for Barbados celebrating independence, huh? mm -hmm. and that they were going to have this cricket match of Barbados versus the world, the reason for that was that at that time Barbados had ten people in the Barbados team out of eleven. <laughs> So there was a little arrogance coming out of Barbados. Mm -hmm. So in the discussion on television, they wanted to bring the Pollock brothers from South Africa and another one from Rhodesia, who were the bastions of, of racism in Africa at the time. And Peter Short, who was a white major, was on uh, and head of the cricket board was on it. So he was making this argument that it was okay to have these um, white South African people come to Barbados to show how black people does live and how blah, 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 blah. And, and Don Norville, who was a sports, sports editor at The Advocate, said to him, don't you think we should put our own house in order first? <laughs> Which is a direct thing about racism and so on. And he said, don't push us, give us our good time. And I got up and wrote this, my first essay on the whole thing. And Jimmy Koja, um, who was then ad editor and founder of the Daily News, called me in and we had a discussion with Erskine Ward, who was one of the students of the Ward family. And they decided that he would reply to my letter and start a debate going. So that was the, the question of, of uh, I'm raising on that. Right. But it's important to understand that, that without that knowledge of who was who, it would have been difficult to, to, to challenge them. But I could challenge them because I had the information. My father also backed me up with other information that, that you know, these, all these secrets that were behind the scenes. So... Okay, so that is what prompted your interest, essentially. And you've never stopped. Well, there was once one other thing, too. I got involved in campus politics. I headed up the Western issues. So, so when I went to New York, I went originally, to, as I said, to do medicine in, in Winnipeg, but work in the hospital. And after I saw that, I, I lost total interest in <laughs> medicine. So I went to New York and I went to NYU and did accounting and finance. And while I was there, I also headed up not only the Western students in the United States, but in North America. So getting involved at those political levels, and the fact is that the Federation was failing because of the 
attitude of Jamaica and Trinidad and everything else like this. So it was a period of un, uh, uh, unsettled uh, political positions, and but it gave me a chance to get involved. To me, this all sounds like such an exciting time in the Caribbean. Yes, the Federation was over, but the islands of the British West Indies were on their way towards independence from Britain. I can definitely see why a young graduate returning home to Barbados would be ready to shake things up, armed with his heightened political and cultural awareness. How do you define crop over? Okay. How do you, Ilambe, define crop over? Having been among Trinidadians and Jamaicans with a John Canoe and all of this, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I also researched and discovered crop over was a festival that was thing. And all it was, was that at the end of the crop, usually on a weekend, they would bring in the last load of canes on a Drake yard, which is that V-shaped yard. Right. And they would have this effigy of Mr. Harding representing hard times. And they would come into the yard, they would eat food and cocoa and whatever it is and drink up some rum or whatever it is. And then they would burn Mr. Harding after about three or four hours, and that was the end of crop over at that point, right? Now, when I was in New York, my Trinidadian friends used to be talking about carnival and this and that and all this. So when I came back home, I joined the Arts Council. And because I also did some courses in radio and television and production, I joined the Arts Council and I said I wanted to be the public relations officer. I said, okay, fine, because nobody wanted it, but I knew what I could do with it. And I introduced a, a program and so on and so forth. And at uh, about the fourth or fifth meeting, the president read a letter that came from the Organization of American States inviting Barbados to participate in this festival. And I said, um, yes, it sounds like a good idea. We, we, we should participate in it. And I said, I would like to recommend two people, two groups the same. And I recommended Schilling, the street guitarist. You know, he used to run the harpers to and fro. And Potato Mouth, the Tukbar man, and his group. And the Chief Justice, Sir Randolph Douglas, looked at me, looked down his nose at me, and flicked his fingers and said, too common. And that was the end of me and that arts council. And I decided I'd go in my direction. And the old man had an old house down at, at, at uh, Fontabelle. And I went and live upstairs and no the serious work. And then I had people coming in and used to sit down on the floor and I would start educating them based on the knowledge that I have acquired. A lot of young people and so on. And one of the things that I had found out at the thing was that this crop over festival and I started talking about it as a as a a balance to Trinidad Carnival and the carnivals of the Eastern Caribbean, which were more Catholic than they were Anglican. 
the Anglican didn't celebrate that carnival tradition like the Catholics did, right? So I wanted a counterpart that was not a copy of carnival. So I started holding these sessions. Everybody can come and used to sit down on the floor in the living room and we would talk and I would explain all the ideas. They would question me. I would defend my position and so on and all this. And of course, uh, I had the platform for the arts and I, would, I had the program doing. I also started um, to record interviews along the East Coast of Barbados, for instance, Philip right to St. Lucie. And, and that, those interviews is what constituted the publication of, for example, uh, the book on stick licking. I interviewed all those stick lickers all up all around the country and so on. Now, the problem was that I also recorded a lot of took bands. And then I would play the took bands on the arts program. And then about the third time I started playing them, the operator jumped up and went downstairs and tell the general manager, they caught a madman up there playing a lot of blasted foolishness. And the manager come up there to ask me what it is that I am playing. I said, I recorded some top bands from Barbados and I am playing it on there and I try and explain the whole cultural tradition. And he tell me, well, he don't think I could continue to do that. I said, well, you don't want me to do the program, right? So you make a choice, you understand? If I'm doing the program, I can do it from based on the content of what I believe that should be done. And eventually he decided to ignore that. And, well, and like that's so how we started. What channel was that? What station was that? CBC. <laughs> so this was in immediate immediate post post independence time, right? Yeah, this is sixty six, right after I, I was there before and all that. So, but but part of the also the discussions at the time that if you wanted to get respect for black people culture, you had to therefore have knowledge of what black people went through and how the culture evolved. So I started these sessions, these lectures. At, 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 it was an old house called Hartness, an old timber house, but it was upstairs too. And I, I, I had a, a, I used to use the bedroom upstairs, move there, and all that. And and what did you call that place? I didn't call it yet. Oh. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't have a definition for it yet. But people knew that you can come down there at nights and sit down and we would talk. We started exploring dance at some, some early part of the afternoons with a woman called Sextus Charles. She's a Trinidadian, but she was living in St. Lucia or something. And she was here. And eventually she helped me start off dance classes, African dances and that. But more importantly, the discussions were really to orient people about a history of Barbados that they were never taught at schools and that will face. So I started all these discussion and pointing out different aspects of Barbadian history. Because uh, my father was a was also a very, he used to take us through the country and show us different places and so on, from a crab hole to a palace, you understand? So we, we got to know that, especially me, especially. So I would have these discussions and so on. And I wanted to plot out what it is that black people had that we can build on to for the arts, for example, in the arts or whatever have you. 
And one of the things was crop over, which I discovered, as I said, back in 1958 uh, in Canada, trying to answer the questions for all these people. The Trinidadians were talking about their carnival, and the Jamaicans was talking about their junk canoe. And I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I found out, and I I started talking about this and how crop over took place and explaining to them and that we need something like this to counter carnival that can involve the major part of the population and also visitors and so on. So I talk about these, various other people and so on. And then one night, Julian Marshall, a Grenadian who was in the Air Force at Errol Barr, who was working with the tourist board as a consultant, he was there. And when he heard me talk about it, he couldn't even wait to hear the end. He jumped out on his moped he had, and he took shot a foot. So, so Stick a pin. I've always heard the expression shunafoot, but if you asked me what it meant exactly, I couldn't tell you. I also don't know if any other islanders use the term, but please let me know if they do. Thankfully, the late Frank Collimore, legendary Barbadian author, poet, actor, and all-round man of the arts, defines it for us in his glossary of Barbadian dialect. He says shunafoot is both an adjective and an adverb, which applies to persons who walk with their toes pointing outwards and their feet, as it were, avoiding each other. Hopefully that clarifies the visual. Now back to the story. And he took shot a foot out so and he and a hat on and he head with the thing blowing and he gone. Next thing the tourist board announced that they were going to do this festival to bring tourists to Barbados in June and July. And he proposed this festival for these tourists. And it would end with a ball at Sandy Lane Hotel, who banned, used to block black people from coming in the hotel, right? So. Okay. So, so that started that. And okay. that started conflict because he went for Emil Straker, who had the Merry Men at the time. He went for Al Jilks, who was a editor at the, at the, at the advocate at the time, and a couple other people. And they sell the city for the first one. The whole of Barbados started to turn out to watch it. What year this was? This this would have been 1970, oh, 1974 or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the exact dates. But if it is a wrong election, the, the election was in 71 and then again in 76. Um, this is general elections. Mm -hmm. So after he did it the first year and everybody turned out, the next year, hardly anybody turned out because they were not involved. They had they had donkey carts sponsored by all the business houses and the hotels and a lot of paraphernalia, but it did not involve black people in any real form or fashion, which is an antithesis to what I was projecting uh, as, as a festival for uh, releasing talent and everything else like this. Anyhow. So what did it what did it involve? It didn't involve the population. So what was it that people were supposed to come and watch and see? The cart parade was the only thing that was the popular thing. They had the decorated cart parade, right? So oh. each business in town sponsored a cart parade and they had enough flowers in the donkey ears and, and I don't at the rear end, I don't know if they had any there too, but but they had a lot of flowers. And as they said, Beijing's out of curiosity came out in vast numbers to watch it come 
um, I can't remember where it started, but it went down Broad Street and came back and ended in Queen's Park. But I am telling you, and you can go and check the records and see, by the second year, people were interested. Okay. Third year, even less. That would be 1975, 76, 77. And they couldn't get it managed no more. And they handed it over to the government to run. And the government handed it over to Nigel Harper with a subset within the Ministry of Education with two people that he had in his office. A girl that was living in the States, that grew up in the States, that come back to Barbados to live, Beverly Lashney, and a secretary. And those were the only three people. And one night I was at my house and I hear this knock on the door and I see Nigel out there and I, Nigel said, man, I, 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 I in trouble. The government just gave me the crop over festival to do. And I know that you had been involved with the idea. Would you be willing to come and see what you can do with it? I said, yeah. And I went and find all the people. I find um, Julian Rogers and all the people that I was working with. And we went in. And, and I restructured it. And what we did was to take the festival, which would last about four to five hours, the traditional festival, right? The car come into the, around five o'clock in the afternoon, right? Mr. Harding sitting on top of the canes in the VTA. And they would be drinking enough swank, you know, swank is syrup and water enough, uh, enough rum. And when they're ready to go home, the burn is the harding and the kids, blah, blah, blah. And that was the aim. Now, tell me, before you go on, because for, just to be clear, this would have happened in one central location or was it? It would happen on different plantations and different right. days on different times. Okay. Okay, the one that is documented is that plantation by called William Scotty House down by Fars Children's Home, um, and, and that is a picture that existed for a while, mm -hmm. um, and um, of people in the yard and so on, dress up and, and so on. Right? With a but, stilt man, the one with a stilt man. Yeah, it could have. I can't remember all the details mm -hmm. of it, but still, still was. So walking was a, a thing, anyhow. But that we can come back to all of that. The, the, the important question point I'm trying to show you is that what Barbados needed, not for tourists, but as outlets for all the creative talents that they had, that never was given recognition at all. Okay, period. And so the the whole idea when Nigel came to me. I brought in people like Julian Rogers and all the other people around the place and, 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 and restructured it over a three-week period, four weekends. The weekend, it would open on the Saturday with the, with the festival, and then it would run, and so on and so on and so on and so on. And then there was a fella called the Mighty Dragon, who used to ride a moped. And Dragon come in and start pestering us and say, but you want the music, you want the Calypso and everything else like this and so on and all that. And that led to trying to pull those Calypsonians together in a tent, which we did. And then by the, later on, as I said, you get four or five or six tents then developing with music and that, that provided the music 
new music for each festival each year and so on. But after no, um, Nigel called us in and, and we redesigned it, including shooting commercials in, in, in Westbury Cemetery at midnight to get the authenticity of what we wanted to produce and all of that, right? You could take the Julia Rogers. It wasn't he alone. It was several other people who were on the periphery of the arts and who were involved and, and liked the idea of, of developing this festival. But Nigel Harper was a, was a key man who opened the doors for us to, to organize it as an administrator. He knew the workings of the public service. He knew how to get in all the filing cabinets and find all the information that we needed necessary to turn on the pressure. And he was a considerable help in helping us to, to de define that. And that is where we started with Cropover. And then I have to give credit to the mighty dragon who used to ride his moped all over the place and find all the old-time Calypsonians from the 50s and helped us put together the Calypso tents because a festival needs music to keep it buoyant. And he knew that, and we knew that. And he pushed, and therefore the tent started, and so on and so forth. What was the first, what was that first tent? Do you know? Do you remember? What was the name of the first tent? It's on record. You can you can check the recordings of 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 it would have been in nineteen nineteen seventy somewhere between nineteen seventy six and nineteen seventy eight nineteen seventy nine because after that it started on a regular basis right and it was I I was at CBC I was at CBC at the time and um, if I remember correctly. Um, in doing that, the min it went into the Ministry of Information, uh, and then culture was added on. Ministry of Information was run by Nigel Barrow, and Nigel was also responsible for broadcasting CBC. So it was a in packaging, a total package, and after the first year or the second year, I don't remember which it was. They needed to do it full-time. And I was transferred into that Department of Culture at Culloden Farm, and we started to do that. And the civil servants primarily was given the job of collecting money, which was unusual. So they didn't even know how to handle money. And this, and this they, is money from where? What, what money is this? That we collecting? did all the revenue that was collected from that year, first year crop over in the ministry. Okay. Right? So you had gate receipts for the Calypso and the tents we organized, you understand, and all of that. So we have this money and it coming in and it sent down. Because remember, this is, we are, we are, we are a subset of the Ministry of Information and Culture. We are civil servants, right? Lo and behold, a man by the name of Potato Mout, who's took ban, who played at one of the Calypso shows or whatever, the first pick of the crop. Notice also, we develop a nomenclature, that is, names that reflected Barbadian culture. So the Cahabla pot, the Kadumant, because Bajan say, but as a real Kadumant or Kadumant, you understand? And that is what we did. We capitalized on that very 
big thing of what uh, Kadumut was to create the Kadumut because we didn't know what it was going to be either, but it was going to be a Kadumut and it was a Kadumut. And the Kahabla pot was a mixture of everything, Calypso, everything in put up in one to create that. So we, we tried to develop and identify Bajan words and language to capture the essence of what that festival was going to be. We did that and all that's first success now, really. And the money coming in and them poor girls piling $1 bills up in the air till the brick book a foot and forget that the fan was on and the fan rotate and blow them all over the rooms. <laughs> and then in comes Potato Mouth to get paid for his performance the weekend before. And the body went take it on. And he went for a cutlass and come back. And he slapped the glass windows around inside that protected the girls. Everybody ran out. The minister wanted to know what the hell was going on. The permanent secretary ran downstairs. And the next thing, by the next Thursday, a paper went before cabinet to establish the National Cultural Foundation to run it so that we could tire our own staff and all of that, which we did on the other side of, of Popover, of the Culloden Farm, right? And we did one more show there, right? Uh, we, we brought in a whole set of staff and started that and then realized after that year that it needed to be outside of the civil service. So we were given Westeris and that's when I completed the whole thing and, and the staff to work in all the different areas of the art forms and the different festivals because NIFCA then became the National Independence Festival of Creative Arts, which was an outlet for the general public and all of that, right? But and that was it. That's how Cropover really got off the ground and we got our budgets. So, and because of Potato Mouth and the Cutlass, no laugh, because what it said to us was that when we did the Pick of the Crop or the Cahabla Pot or any show, right, Andrea Gollop was given the role as paymaster. As you come off the stage, she presented you with an envelope with your check and you sign receipt of it, and bam. So all of that was done for every single person, whether it was on the street or not. She would have a check written out, signed and authorized, because we knew what we were paying all the people. If you win the competition, we know how much she was going to get, bam, we write the check, and you get it, and, and, and so on. So all of that structure. Remember, I got trained as an accountant also in my last years at NYU. Mm -hmm. So I understood the, 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 the organization of that. And that that was where we were. You wrote in Better Must Come that people in Barbados were inclined to dismiss aspects of their culture as worthless due to Eurocentric values and indoctrination. Aside from the nomenclature which you mentioned, how else were you and the team at the National Cultural Foundation able to garner interest and participation from musicians, designers, and the wider public? Like, what made them want to be a part of this? Let me just go back a little bit and, and, and so on. My mother was a serious cook about pepper pots, right? And she used to throw all these different things. It was having chicken, it was having beef, it was having pork, it was having this, it was having that. And this thing from the stove and a big pot boiling for years. And because the old man was in politics, a lot of 
constituents used to come. So she used to have all these, this big colossal pot looking more like a, a barrel and anything else, fill up the thing and it'd be dished out to these people coming up by the old man. So that was the cohobla part, right? Which was training everything from Tukbans to Jackie Opel or, or church squares if, if it was necessary to do it because we wanted to provide a platform for talent that they didn't have. This practice of applying terms from Bajan parlance like to-do or kudumit and kahoblapot to this reimagined former plantation festival really struck me, especially when we remember that this was all happening just over a decade after Barbados became independent from Britain. It was still a time when many still held all things British to be the only noteworthy standard. How do you go about, as newly minted cultural leaders, putting your own stamp on things and raising it to a new national level? Let's find out about that and more when we conclude Season 1 in the next episode of our 166. I hope you'll join me and tell a friend. Our 166 was created and produced by me, Kim Howard. Mixing and editing was by Graeme Johnson. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at R166. Until next time, get up good. <laughs>